Nothing Never Happens, a Radical Pedagogy podcast. My name is Lucia Holsether here with my co-host, Tina Pippin. And just need to say, starting out, that I'm really having a fangirl moment because I get to introduce Jodi Malamed. Um, I am just stoked that Jodi is here with us. She is an associate professor of English and Africana studies at Marquette University. Her first book, Represent and Destroy, is a truly devastating, in the best way, analysis of how liberal and neoliberal institutions of power respond to and have historically responded to the demands of radical anti-racist movements. In this work, Jody coins the phrase official anti-racism to describe um, the pedagogies of racial knowledge that not only foreclose materialist accounts of racial justice, but augment forms of racist violence that become signified through optics of diversity, inclusion, and multiculturalism. I'll just insert here that I think that probably anybody listening could think of books that have been particularly enabling in our lives that like when you read them, it offers a vocabulary that's like, oh my gosh, this was, this was what I might have been trying to say, or this helps me connect the dots. And that this was that book for me when I was a senior in college. Um, it helped me name dynamics I didn't know how to name. Um, and now basically the citation for represent and destroy appears in everything I write. So um, intellectual genealogies are giving one this book would be one of the main ones. So Jody's current project entitled Dispossession by Administration is, is building on this analysis by reflecting on how apparently neutral bureaucratic language paves the way for racist capitalist violence. Um, I read another interview with her in preparation for this podcast where she proposes that the university system needs a, an acronym that is um, adjacent to the ACAB, all cops are bastards, um, AAAB, all administrators are bastards. I don't know if we can say that on there. I'm just going to say, you know, this is, she offered this language. I'm just repeating it here. Um, she has a laundry list of awards, grants, and publications. She's an active participant in and scholar of grassroots abolitionist, decolonial, and anti-austerity movements in Milwaukee and beyond. I'm not going to list them here because I need to stop talking so that we can have our conversation. Welcome, Jody, to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for that super generous um, gathering me in, giving me the gift of feeling useful, which is like such a huge gift. And I am just like honored to be here talking with you both today. Well, thank you for being here, Jody. Um, Paulo Freire has talked about the intersections of theory and practice, and that is something that you do really well. Uh, he also talks about why theory is so important, especially the really depths of theory that are uh, head hurting sometimes and, and stretch you to another place. And for me, your work has done that, um, has helped me to see, uh, I guess, more of the matrix of higher education institutions and exactly what those webs of relationships are. And so I really appreciate that. So my first question uh, related to that is, what brought you to your work? How did you you, graduate of Columbia University, get radicalized uh, in this process. Was it, it pedagogical experiences, the theory you read in, in your studies, uh, what the activism you did, what brought you to this point? 
Wow, you know, that's such a good question. Um, thank you for, uh, thank you for it. Thank you for the, the emphasis on praxis, right? Because I do think I'm really trying to figure out the way like historical material social process can work against us when it's like reified in institutions that, you know, cohere with kind of dominant systems and when we can like interrupt that by building our own infrastructures of kind of change, resistance and survival. Um, and the university is inside both those structures to me, right? It's both inside kind of circulations of racial capitalism and nationalism um, and heteropatriarchal dominance. And it also can be a beachhead for the liberatory movements that have formed me, uh, like women of color feminism and black radicalism and, you know, uh, thinking about uh, labor and that sort of thing. Um, I think I'm going to answer this question like, I think I want to answer it in like three ways, but I don't want to take too much time. But I, I think, I, so in honor of the fact that this collaboration, this podcast is a collaboration that grew out of y'all's mentoring relationship with each other, I would like to talk a little bit about my, who mentored me both in graduate school and then uh, in sort of communities. I'll focus on Milwaukee that are kind of carriers of radical consciousness that have been such a part of my learning because we're also sort of like uh, white radical anti-racist educators, I'll also answer that question, I think by, you know, telling a story about the first time that I felt in a really like embodied way that the function of the American university was to uh, maintain whiteness as property through time and how my soul kind of rebelled against that. And then maybe I will uh, like quote an ancestor and a dream. So that's a lot. But uh, I'll just like start with by saying that, you know, uh, my work that you described so well, uh, Lucia, on, um, Lucia, on uh, how successive official anti-racisms stabilize racial capitalism after World War II by making capitalist rights and freedoms like the horizon and mean of anti-racism definitely goes back to graduate school mentors who all in their own ways we're learning to learn from social movements of various kinds and liberatory movements of various kinds about liberation that is not liberation, right? Liberation that is domination. What my co-conspirator from graduate school days, Chandan Reddy calls freedom with violence. So I was lucky enough to be mentored by Gayatri Chakraborty Spivak, right? Who called out liberation without liberation, right? All the time from her post-colonial feminist Marxist deconstructionist lens especially calling out post-colonial nationalism uh, organized by US-led capitalist globalization as an extension of gendered colonial and capitalist uh, violences, right? Her work on the representational and epistemic violence done in the name of giving voice to, right? Or representing, as she writes about in Can the Subaltern Speak, which like everybody should read who's interested in radical pedagogy, right? Uh, really is at the center of represent and destroy. Thinking about Lisa Lowe's work a lot today. Um, I didn't study with her, but all of my, like so many people in my cohort were her students. And uh, reading her work meant so much to me. Uh, I learned about liberation without liberation from her thinking about citizenship as violence through the lens of Asian American critique, right? How Asian American culture and performance and memory exposed the violence of US heteropatriarchal settler imperial citizenship by having us remember intern internment and exclusion and the imperial misogyny of US wars in Asia that we must think about so much today, as well as the specific violences against Asian immigrant workers 
And the last person I'll mention is the late and great um, Marcellus Blount, who was doing, you know, queer of color critique before we had a name for that, right? But really uh, doing liberation, teaching me about liberation without liberation by really teaching me about sort of uh, queer refusals of complicity with the seductions of normativity sort of offered by the state with, you know, tantalizing sides, poisonous sides of uh, racial, sexual and gender regulation, right? Uh, and part of my learning has always been to try to learn outside of the university, right? From communities that really uh, carry complete infrastructures of radical consciousness. As an American studies scholar coming to Milwaukee has been amazing for me. Um, I have learned so much through uh, the black radical and black communist communities that used to gather around America's Black Holocaust Museum here, which is kind of being reborn. Uh, it's the only sort of institution of study that was founded by a person who survived a lynching. Um, Palestinian diasporic communities here have taught me so much about, um, you know, how racial fascism uh, can appear like democracy to its favored citizens, right? And most of my learning, like even that, like so many, so much a big part of it here, perhaps the most resituating part has been um, my learning from guides, relatives, and now ancestors in sort of urban Indian country, Milwaukee, right? And from uh, the many indigenous diasporas and people whose homelands are from right here. I will just mention um, my recently passed uncle, uh, Alan Caldwell, who was president of the Menominee Tribal College for a while, who started the Indian Community School here in Milwaukee, who taught me a lot about sort of like optimism of the will in like, it's so relevant again now, like during the 1980s in Northern Wisconsin, there were just mobs of uh, white anti-Indian violence uh, that met that Ojibwe fishermen had to face every time they went out onto their boats to exercise their like treaty rights uh, and do spearfishing. And his reaction to that was to get Act 31 passed in Wisconsin, which uh, requires uh, teaching treaties in K through 12 education, right? So uh, a lot to learn uh, from, from those folks. In terms of the, like I don't want this to be origin story of wokeness, right? So the other origin story I'll tell for my work is that story of learning my embeddedness within a university whose function is to kind of maintain whiteness as property through time. And you guys know in, in like African-American literature, there's like a trope where like the black protagonist, like all of a sudden is in, like uh, ushered into the meaning of race as a concept in the world, right? And how much it will affect their lives. Like the Du Bois scene where he's refused a visiting card and now he understands double consciousness and the race is available. And like this summer, and I know you guys must have experienced this as well, where there was such a like, call to do education and sort of facing whiteness for white communities, right? That it was kind of exhausting. Uh, but I thought it would be a really good idea for white folks to have a kind of like parallel opposite story of how we knew we were involved in this systemic system of racial oppression, like our first time knowing that. And my story is about the university, right? So. Like you mentioned, I was at Columbia University. Uh, my first class that I taught, that was my own class that I could design, um, that was not the teaching writing, right, the freshman comp, was at City College on 137th, right, right up the hill from Columbia. And I was so psyched to teach there. My grandmother went there, like at the time when only women, like the, you know, Jews from, from Coney Island, Seagate, they could only, like women could only go at night, you know, so I was so excited. Um, 
Uh, and uh, I had been hired as an adjunct to teach at 27 years old, right? To teach African-American literature. The class had 45 people in it. I was the only white person in that classroom, right? Of 45 African and African-American and Afro-Caribbean students, right? So that, you know, showed me about kind of a university's function um, as maintaining whiteness as property, right? I was being institutionally validated somehow to be the teacher, right? I was being paid to be the teacher, right? And I was being paid in a sense to do what my colleague Cedric Burroughs calls white script the text, kind of view them through a kind of white cultural lens because of course, many of the students in the class had a, a closer cultural relationship to the text than I had, right? So it taught me a lot about the discipline, discipline in two senses of the word of English, right? and its function and kind of certifying racial difference. And what made that class work was our recognition of the power asymmetries at play and the kind of uh, injustice of it and the then kind of radical generosity of the students to turn the class into a collaboration among themselves, right? And to include me. Um, and this was at a time, you know, these were students who were working with Amiri Baraka in, in Newark. And these were students who were also working with like Louis Farrakhan. At, at City College, right? And we, we found this way to kind of like turn it into uh, an excellent class. And then the last story I'll just tell that like the more, uh, like like, like a, in this bridge called My Black, Cherry Moraga like tries to explain what drew her to women of color feminism. And she has this line, I've never talked about this, but I've always really loved this line. But she had this, she has this line that says, you know, like I knew I loved women all the way down. Like I loved all women, I loved them all the way down and I couldn't stand being separated from any of them, right? And that's what racial capitalism does. It partitions us and tries to control how we relate to each other, who can relate and under what terms, right? And I think I have always um, had that feeling of not wanting to be partitioned, right? Wanting to be in like fully, you know, re reciprocal, reciprocal, you know, like carefully, uh, uh, you know, creating sort of careful uh, forms of uh, uh, mutuality and love, right? And uh, uh, so I think, I think that is part of why I was drawn to the kind of work I do. That's fabulous. I think I'll just dive right in. Um, you, so this has already danced a little bit around in some of the stories you've told we work, all of us, within um, private, I think, all of us institutions that really, if you were to read their website, if you were to go to their Office of Multicultural Affairs or Intercultural Affairs, as it was changed to at Agnes Scott while I was there, um, I would say, we want those kinds of great student-centered experiences like you had at City College, Jody, all the time. We're here to talk about inclusion and create, um, create experience for radical, innovative encounters and um, abolitionist teaching. Um, tell me, tell me what, tell me how I should be responding to that when I'm, um, you know looking and feeling so impressed by an institution's uh, vocabularies of social justice and infrastructure for enabling it. Right, it's, it's so bad. We're at such a bad time, right? I really feel that 
these uh, Centers for Diversity and Inclusion have taken up some of that racial management that English did for racial liberalism and liberal multiculturalism. Um, uh, there's so many things I wanna say about this. Yeah, and okay. I wanna step in and add that since Lucia was at the college, they have um, institutionalized it even further. We now have a vice president for- I know. Okay, I would say that all these diversity and inclusion initiatives are actually trying to squash the kind of experience that I was just talking about, right? I really believe that they're there in a counterinsurgent function to the beachhead that uh, has been made in the university for abolitionist thinking, for queer of color thinking, through black studies, through critical race and ethics studies, through gender and sexuality programs, right? They're there to confuse <laughs> the students, right? Uh, and they're, um, they're, uh, they're really dangerous right now um, because I do think that they are appropriation machines. But what we can do is always like what I have, like my work on official anti-racisms leads me to always look at the line between where universities um, can, uh, like where the official institutional discourse of universities uh, can uh, try to um, uh, talk in a way, right? That is a speech act for diversity that always reminds me of like what Baldwin says, like, I can't believe what you say because I look at what you do, right? Or it reminds me of Sarah Ahmed's work that says like, don't pay attention to like statements about diversity because what they are are just statements of diversity. And they remind me of uh, Robin Kelly's point that like universities will never love you back, right? Uh, so between universities trying to do, do this appropriative work that is in keeping with their role of creating a kind of multiracial professional managerial class that feels like they know enough about anti-racism to do the work that they're called to do, right, as part of that class, and where the university then also teaches us uh, how to continue to kind of uh, keep racialized criminalization going as a mode of governance, right? Like governance, like what they can't incorporate. So I'll tell a few stories, right? So at Marquette University, just a couple of years ago, it's like, my, 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 now systemic racism is something that universities can appropriate, right? Uh, but uh, just a couple of years ago at Marquette University, uh, a woman named Susanna Bartlow, who is a white woman scholar, was head of our LGBTQ resource center. She did a great democratic, process of political education with a group of black uh, women sorority students to put up a mural in her center. And the students decided they wanted a mural of Asada Shakur, right? And they put up a beautiful mural that had her lines on it, right? No one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. No one is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they know that knowledge will help set you free. And the university proved them right by whitewashing, literally whitewashing the mural, like painting over it, right, and firing Susanna. And the reason was the university's diversity discourse could not take on, it could not expose more, you know, much less endorse the idea of a Black woman needing to resist militantly against anti-Black, anti-democratic policing, right? At this time, she was the only, like that mural was the only representation 
of a Black woman on campus. So there are all these multicultural reasons to like leave it up among like all the representational, you know, sort of uh, uh, choices that the university made, but no, they whitewashed it. Now in an era of really counter-revolutionary neoliberal multiculturalism, right, where the university is at pains to take everything people are learning and thinking as part of the uprisings going on right now, right, for real multiracial democracy, not limited by the capitalism, the you know, capitalist democracy that functions as business as usual, that universities are really, uh, really um, part of the reproduction of, right? Now the university has caught up with the times enough that it sponsored a competition open only to BIPOC artists to paint a mural on the side of uh, one of our buildings, a big, beautiful, you know, giant mural that has uh, four young women on it, um, uh, a Muslim woman in hijab, um, uh, American Indian woman in regalia, a Latinx woman, an African American woman. And the title of this artwork is, you know, our roots say we are sisters, right? But this is at the same moment that the university is hiring more police, right? To criminalize our black and brown neighbors, right? Uh, is criminalizing uh, the union efforts that we have going on has abandoned its initiative to be his, the Hispanic serving institute, right? And is, um, uh, you know, uh, fully a part of the city's attempt to um, keep a development strategy going that only focuses on, you know, because universities, of course, are, are big developers in cities that focuses on the university, focuses on the downtown, focuses on white neighborhoods and continues to asset strip black and brown neighborhoods, right? So I think it's really a dangerous, dangerous time. Um, whites, we had the white supremacy under, uh, white supremacy under um, becoming politically viable again under Trump. Um, we had uprisings against racial capitalism that have enlivened these structures that our students are part of, that our colleagues are part of, that our cities are part of, that are questioning borders, you know, refusing to think of housing as a commodity, asking us to think uh, anew about relationships with land with indigenous people. And then we have universities doing that crisis management, right? In that counter-revolutionary neoliberal uh, kind of cultural mode. Can I tell one more story or should I stop? I mean, so just one more story, right? I, I'm amazed at how fast like Coca-Cola uses the phrase Black Lives Matter. Or, you know, I've heard that even a, like one of those Southern plantation museums hung up a banner that said Black Lives Matter, right? How easy it is for universities, primarily white uh, universities to say Black Lives Matter or systemic racism, right? As they don't get rid of their police forces, as they ignore, you know, calls for more housing and jobs that are part of defund, divest, defeat the police kind of movements, right? So the way we, we noticed that in the crisis management of the times, the people the university asked to speak to the community are their diversity officers, not their Black studies professors, not their Latinx studies professors. In fact, when we publish something, it's not part of what they announced to the world as their effort on, you know, dealing with racial justice. We can talk about the coloniality and carcerality of justice later, but, um, but instead the diversity professionals themselves speak and administrators try to present themselves as woke in one way or another. So we have a president, you know, sort of a white in his 50s, first lay president of Marquette University who has decided 
that he wants to reorganize the whole nonprofit industrial complex in Milwaukee that works on issues of poverty and racial inequality and health disparities around the idea of trauma because trauma is something he thinks he understands because he has abusive, you know, he had an abusive father and on that ACEs test, he scored really high, the, you know, so he knows about trauma. He also has learned that he's a racist, so he can't be racist because he knows he's a racist, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, as our black student council exposed in their beautiful and continuity with the uprisings against racial capitalism going on in the city have exposed the fact that he puts a million dollars a year into his trauma initiative. We do not have one mental health counselor of color, not one black counselor of color to deal with the trauma of, of uh, black indigenous and POC students, right? At Marquette, you know? So, so the emptiness of that discourse is just really um, obvious and profound at this, at this moment, I would say. Well, I wanna follow up on that. Um and uh, your whole idea of this counter-revolutionary neoliberal multiculturalism. Um, right before this interview, I was entering on a data sheet uh, request for our uh, employee emergency fund. We had, um, oh, I think almost 100 uh, hourly staff who were furloughed. Um, in August and uh, reconstituted the fund. Well, it got taken over from the, uh, the living wage campaign on campus that begun it about uh, 15 years ago to um, being part of the college. Um, and, and there was, there's some, you know, um, risk to doing that, but um, we can raise more money that way. However, I'm, you know, an activist in the living wage campaign, and now I'm entering requests for rent and uh, medical bills. Mm -hmm. They lost their health insurance in the dining hall, et cetera, on this form. And so I think about all this, and I have talked to our director um, of multiculturalism and mm -hmm. interculturalism, et cetera about all of this, how can we really say we are uh, woke or, um, or we really care about diversity and inclusion when we don't include um, a certain um, population, huge population of our colleagues. And, you know, I would argue with Angela Davis and others that what we're doing is, is prolonging, you know, slavery plantation culture into the new new Jim Crow and the neo plantation and but what you point out is you know how institutions um, can appropriate and put a really good face on this um, so and and you were writing um, you know during a time most recently uh, of the Trump administration mm -hmm. now there has there's been a shift right um, both Biden and Harris were are in Atlanta today because of the tragic um, shootings uh, of Asian Americans, predominantly Asian Americans. And so, what what would you say? Because uh, you were you were speaking before, um, you know, to the Trump administration. What would you say today to the Biden administration? And um, what? 
I'm, I'm wondering, you know, with Marquette, I'm, I'm assuming also this, this hierarchy of, of race and class and um, gender too, uh, at, at, at the way the institution works, the essential workers who make poverty wages, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, that's a really uh, lots of lots of tunnels in that question. No, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I would say so. Thinking the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, and basically how power is going to work and how universities are going to be part of that. Um, you know, there's an old activist saying um, that I think still like is still in place. That is sort of like you know what you have to do. It's always the same three things to do. It's like keep the fascists down sort of weaken the liberals and the imperial capitalist state they love and build dual power, right? Build dual power. So what it is to build dual power can seem a little more confusing under the Biden administration that's being pushed in certain, you know, great ways by uh, the movements of the times, you know, by the democratic socialists, right? Um, yet at the same time, we're up for a new round of kind of reformist reform. My concern is that under a Biden administration, right, where, where uh, Trump kind of like, uh, uh, you know, wanted a state, like he wanted, a, uh, he, he, he wanted to put in place a society that was kind of the state was very weak, right? It was like anti-intellectual, universities were to be attacked because they could provide context, right? Critically, it was not something you could think about, but society would still be strongly ordered around sort of like white supremacy and law enforcement, right? Uh, so he was kind of uh, like openly carceral in a white supremacist way. I'm worried that under Biden, we're going to get more of a therapeutic carcerality where nonprofits and universities will play a very strong role in not building Democrat, like doing the, like repressing, incorporating, being counter insurgent against really strong movements for multiracial democracy, and we'll try to translate those into uh, social, social service provision in a way that is subject to all the administrative violence of who's deserving and undeserving of it, right? So I think like, uh, you know, Dean Spade's work on mutual aid, right? That wants us to discern, right? Where we're, we're really building, you know, like a uh, dual, like a power that is not hooked into the systems that already don't serve us, right, is so, so important. And the main thrust of everything official the university does will be to make that therapeutic carcerality more normal and more acceptable. So I really think that one thing, like the, the, the way that um, like pops off campus and all the organization going on uh, uh, in universities to you know, try to get rid of their police forces is really important because I think universities, the way the administration works in line with their police forces are actually laboratories for doing what I'm afraid is going to emerge as something we might call justice carcerality. So Biden's, like his plan uh, for um, uh, like criminal justice, he entitled when he was running for office, it was called the Biden plan for strengthening America's commitment to justice, right? But it's just a plan for policing and using the courts, right? But we're calling that justice. So I'm thinking about that as a kind of uh, carceral justice. And I think universities for doing this therapeutic carcerality are going to be laboratories for it. 
because universities can wield care on the one hand as kind of therapeutic discipline and punishment on the other as guns, tasers, and tear gas, right? So this administration policing complex, right, on campuses, it can do all these therapy-seeming gaslighting punishments. Like we had a student activist who was asked to write, you know, who violated university demonstration policy and was asked to write a better demonstration policy for the university, right? I, you know, this, this is happening everywhere, right? Where, you know, it's kind of like, a mild version of Uyghur re-education going on in China. I mean, that's a, like an insane, you know, sort of comparison, but a really gaslighting kind of thing in the name of therapy and teaching you the error of your ways. Um, so the university can do that on the one hand to revolutionary change-seeking students who want to like do the disruption that creates change. And on the other hand, it can continue to kind of police BIPOC you know, community militants as, you know, hardened criminals um, when they participate in some of the activism on campus, right? So, you know, Rod Ferguson's great book, The Reorder of Things, talks about, you know, the university's role as being pedagogical for state and capitalism. And I think in this moment, the university is partially, its role is partially to whitewash the carcerality of uh, what is being called racial justice, right? On this administrative continuum from the kind of weaponized therapeutic to uh, locking up the irredeemably antisocial. And we just have to figure, like, keep in mind over and over again that universities do not know how to function, you know, as multiracial, like as empower, like empowering multiracial democratic constituencies, right? Um, uh, they are fully involved in the logic of markets and the logic of uh, budgeting and the logics of uh, municipal governments as, in cities as usual that, that can only find, you know, uh, the kinds of uprisings we've been seeing in cities threatening, right? That, that universities too rely on policing in all sorts of ways. Um, I think it's really important to keep in mind. And I'm, I'm also worried that universities will double down on uh, turning oppression into nonprofit careers for university graduates, right? Like everything that's geared towards that will um, uh, be financed. And the beachheads, right, where universities are places where we work together to build dual power inside and outside of the university, right, will become, uh, you know, uh, ever more, you know, there's they're like insecure in some ways. So that's what I'm worried about is the whole, the whole uh, therapeutic, you know, administrative um, uh, turn. You're helping me connect right now how there's both a sort of like insincere optics that cover over and or create space for new housing projects expansion of the university or new housing like grabs um, expansions of the university ongoing racist policies and there's something else and that and all of that is a kind of system of of racial knowledge that the university is from and inculcating on communities around it. One of the things that this is helping me connect to though is how I've seen some of some more radical scholars, both white scholars, scholars of colors work that is that are critiquing these very systems that are using the language of neoliberal multiculturalism that are talking about sort of carceral um, carceral multiculturalisms in the university get added to the central committees for reshaping the humanities. And that that 
too is a kind of annexing and isolating of um of people as a property of it, like we're responsible for this critique. So how can you critique the universe? How can you critique the university from within it? That's one of the questions that I am often asked about my work, especially as a grad student. And two, why don't you come and help us? Why don't you come and teach us um, how to do it better as a way of generating investment, reinvestment back into that very system through radical scholar, but uh, getting radical scholars or radical students to reinvest in their institutions um, in order to not only like waste their time, but also to sort of um, kind of participate in a like kind of virtue ethic pedagogy of formation of attachments. Um, so anyway, that, that was all and that was, that's a comment about me kind of <laughs> connecting. Yes, that. Very, uh, very, I mean, it's just, yes, that's what's going on. Yeah. I'm curious about then this is some, this is sort of a, a selfish question because I find that in my sort of like as a sort of younger scholar, as a white scholar, as a petite scholar, often people um, and feminine. Yeah. When I'm kind of giving a paper that's like neoliberal multiculturalism, this and that, um, read Jody Milano. Um, <laughs> a response um, that I get that's like, oh, like, can you explain that to me again? Or what do you want instead? Where's your source of hope? And the kind of like yeah. desire for a more like toned down kind of didactic yeah. um, explanation or maybe domesticated explanation to specifically older white scholars who are both able to hear it, but are both or able to hear it from me um, because of my embodiment, I think. Yes. And also wanting, um, but also I've said it a million times, there are so many other places to hear it. So like to hear these critiques. Yeah. So I'm curious about sort of how you, you respond to incorporative gestures on your own work um, by institutions of power that not only are trying to like patent their own kind of diversity brands, but also lay claim to the critiques of those brands as proof for like why they're so open and free and yeah. enabling a critical discourse. Yeah, I mean, my university has stopped trying to appropriate me because they don't like what I say every time. Like they've like it's a small enough place that I've been there long enough now that it's sort of like, how do we give you the teaching award but not let you give the talk that you're supposed to give when you win the teaching award, right? But I mean, I would say uh, so many things. I mean, I would say that you know they're just gonna try to incorporate. And that the point is not to try to stop them from incorporating and to, to go back to that thing about dual power, the point is to build, uh, not try to build with them, right? But to build with the folks who are building up the infrastructures of survival, change uh, and revolution. And to me, this is the big thing that I wanna talk about, right? Um, and that I think is another one of those like litmus tests, right? That require us to think outside liberal divisions of knowledge that are also capitalist divisions of knowledge that are also colonial divisions of knowledge, right? And the role of the university is to pretend that knowledge is just that, right? So when people are like, I don't know what neoliberal multiculturalism means, like, are you talking about 
a culture? Are you talking about an economics, right? Are you talking about politics or economics? Which one are you talking about? You know, should it, you know, like, where's your, where's your evidence, right? Like, uh, uh, like all of, like, they're just not, they're just not going to get it, right? They're like, uh, so, so, so we need, we need to, like, to develop radical consciousness, you have to work inside and outside the university. And I think what we can do within the university is kind of to try to all the time disrupt and call attention to the inadequacy of those liberal divisions of knowledge, whether they appear in diversity forums, whether they appear in disciplinary forums, whether they appear in, you know, sort of within the interdisciplines. And I want to, if you guys will allow, talk about my new project for a minute, because I think it will explain it more, right? Because you know, when I talk about administrative violence, in some ways I'm talking about our university administrators, <laughs> but I think we can think about how to build dual power and like steal and organize within the universities, but not always address ourselves to the university or really care because they're just status machines, right? They're just like, you know what I mean? Um, like, I think we can think about that building dual power by interrupting liberal divisions of knowledge a little bit if I manage to explain my administrative violence stuff. Um, and I'd love to get your feedback on it because this is really new work. Let me know where it's helpful and where it's not. Um, and anybody who's listening to this and wants to email me and tell me, that would be wonderful too, <laughs> okay? So I'm trying to think about administrative power as an operationalizing force for racial capitalism that organizes and whitewashes the violence racial capitalism requires not only by using race, right, to differentially devalue in ways that we understand from thinking racial capitalism, but also by always at the same time using liberalism as a thick episteme and just as a vernacular, that vernacular liberalism that structures our everyday life, right, like uh, property and nation states, individualism, right, liberalism as a praxis of racial management and colonial administration, right, that exercises power in a way that our normal thinking of liberalism completely denies. So liberalism tells us what? It tells us that power is in the state, maybe it's in the law, maybe it's in the economy, it's not an administration, right? Administration is merely kind of a neutral procedure. Sometimes it's, you know, a handmaiden against bias, right? It's sort of like an antidote to violence and sometimes within liberalism, right? But I think that actually, if we use our understanding of racial capitalism and colonial capitalism, like all capitalism is also colonial, to understand what liberalism is doing, right? As it works with racial regimes, right? As it works with capitalism, as they're all co-constituted, right? Historically and every day. Um, when we use racial capitalism as our framework, we're seeing, we can see that administrative power, liberal administration actually exercises a fused kind of state, capital, law, police policy power that I think of as an it gets done power that liberalism denies and deploys, right? That lets these background conditions of domination and hegemony and also resistance to that, like kind of come into play, right? Power gets done what it can get done. And then it does this trick that I think of as happening around a law administration force continuum, right? We think that what's supposed to happen is law decides something, administration makes sure it happens, and then like police or whatever enforces it. But I actually think what happens is, you know, power gets done what it can gets done, then it handles law, right? It decides what it wants to call justification, right? It decides, you know, how it's gonna interpret what it already decided to do. And then it enforces 
and predisposes the continuation of what it decided to do as like the playing field for the next like iteration, you know, as the as kind of the new normal. So we see all the time over again in universities are completely implicated in this that supposedly neutral outcomes align with the interests of the powerful. It happens again and again and again, right? Like a university president who, you know, like uh, you were talking about Tina, right? Has decided to lay off faculty, right? Or lay off staff or not pay, pay staff living wage or close units, right? They decide they're gonna do that. Then they find fake justification, which is the same thing as real justification, right? In the handbook, you know, or in the mission or under some sort of fake arrangement of shared governance that justifies the outcome they've already kind of decided they were gonna make happen, right? And then they enforce it as the new normal, right? And I think that's how, you know, it's a, that to me is an important part of how uh, power works for racial capitalism in general, right? Administrative power works under racial capitalism. So what that tells us, right, is that the way you fight all this is by recognizing that there are always other ways that things get done. This idea that there's this one way of doing it, right? That these circulations of, you know, like racial capitalism, like, like that we call systemic racism the times, right? That there's only one way, like things can get done that's neutral and rational um, and democratic and technically smart, right? All of that is such a lie, right? We all know what the university administrators are doing when they do that, right? We all know, we all know that it's an exercise of power, right? And that this achievement of continuity, right, that administrative power seems to provide, right, is like a form of appearance as if power, right, that pretends to rule the world, because it's not true. You know, all these circulations that, you know, are driven by what William Barber calls measurements of death because they're profit driven, right? There, there are always other, you know, circulations, flows, infrastructures, ways of getting things done differently, right? Infrastructures of care and solidarity and meaning that are about increasing well-being, about surviving, about, you know, uh, enlivening uh, our, our ability to be collective, right? And there's so many names for these now, like abolition or mutual aid or kinship, right? Or the third reconstruction, but they're not, they don't fit within political modes of political knowledge of liberalism that the university tells us are the real. Right, so I like to lean a little bit on my discipline when I talk about this in classes and like uh, uh, call attention to how we need to get beyond this elite politics of liberal political knowledge by, for instance, pointing to something like the Red Nation, which is like an indigenous, socialist, internationalist uh, group of folks from all over who have recently put out a really great uh, like deal called the Red Deal and a manifesto that I read in class with my students this week that's called like communism is the horizon and indigenous queer feminism is like the path or something like that. But they repeat as part of this manifesto, manifesting new meanings, this phrase that what, you know, what they imagine as part of imagining like indigenous liberation that has to include black liberation and all of this is, and this is the phrase, right? Uh, they want a world where many worlds fit a world where many worlds fit, right? And that just doesn't make any sense from the point of view of kind of like liberal understandings of nation states and sovereignty and authority and territory and how they all go together, right? And land as property. But if you really like, you know, leave that behind and use our beachheads in universities, right? To 
bring forward these kinds of radical consciousness, whether they're indigenous epistemes, whether they're socialist epistemes, whether they're deconstructionist epistemes, right? Uh, that are informed by surviving the histories of freedom with violence, right? Uh, then, then I think we're doing something useful within universities and we're helping to give legibility to something that can help us build dual power. But at all, at all times, deflate, right? Those diversity statements and things, right? We can't, we can't do that enough. It's exhausting. Um, but being on those committees is even more exhausting. And it, it's, really, it's really hard too, because uh, the university will, will punish you for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanna turn uh, towards your phrase, disruptive institutionality. I think you're talking a bit about here and turn towards pedagogy and how this relates to, uh, you know, what we do in the classroom. And I have a quote from you that I really like um, that I'm going to read um, from one of your articles. My suggestion for thinking about pedagogy is to advocate for thinking and teaching that renews our sense of institutions as sites where the form and appearance of social being and collectivity is determined through social action and contest, even as we problematize institutions as always explicitly incorporative, as constituted out of the durable predispositions of adapted hegemonies. Mm. Um, and then you talk about <clears throat> institutionality can be made to line up anti-intuitively with critical rubrics that empower us to try to inhabit social being otherwise. And here's Bowdoin's undercommons and abolition and fugitivity while reminding us that radical change requires structure. So I'd like you to talk a bit more about that, about how to disrupt this huge machine and matrix and whatever it is that <laughs> has so much power. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we can give it power and disrupt it all at the same time. You know what I mean? It's not, it's kind of like yeah. putting the brakes on here, you know, trying to put a brake on here and like drive this other thing, uh, you know, give energy to that other thing. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, um, uh, you know, your hands never remain clean, you know what I mean? But you're always also able to like uh, build power with others towards that, you know, uh, that better world, that other institution. Um, you know, we are institutions. We, you know what I mean? We, like, they are like sedimented out of human social relationships, right? But we have to convince people that we can relate to one another differently, right? Which means uh, like a lot of the truisms of the university have to fall, right? Like they're like, you know what I mean? That like diversity as a term should not, should also make us think about people who never go to universities, right? How are they included in diversity, you know? Um, uh, uh, we have to really value and hold like those moments where we're building dual power. We don't know how to talk about it like in institutional terms, but it is becoming like durable and going from generation to generation and kind of uh, continuing, right? So I'm thinking about, you know, our black student, uh, you know, like I've been at Marquette now for like 15 years and every few years there will be you know former students who tried to like hold the university to uh, provide uh, more space epistemic understanding 
you know, justice, right, for Black or Brown and Indigenous students will gather together, you know, and uh, talk to one another and talk in languages that the university will not recognize, the administration will not recognize as rational, right? They'll, they'll talk about like bringing ancestors into the institution. You know, and the ancestors they bring in are kind of a institutional framework, right? Like, you know, what are we being asked to do here? And not just here, but in the city at the same time or with folks in the city who only know Marquette as, you know, a repressive institution that brought, you know, that tried to like kick them out of their house. You know what I mean? Like, what are we called to do you know, with our aunties and our uncles and our friends and as part of this movement, you know, like, uh, you know, um, that may have an institutional forum that lasts for years or doesn't. Um, uh, so, so, so those are, those are some of my first thoughts. Is there, tell me, uh, Tina, a part of it that you want to like push on a little bit more. Um, I'm thinking, you know, how does, how does your own pedagogy, how do you think about that in the classroom, how you teach with students in terms of power and um, the institutional stuff that they're, we're all carrying with us in the classroom? I mean, one of the things I try to do is teach them that this isn't the only place they learn. You know what I mean? So one like assignment I do all the time, it's like learning to learn you know, from Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee's many, you know, communities of formal and informal knowledges of different kinds of, you know, political knowledges, ways to get political education, right? So um, I let them know that there is knowing everywhere. And especially when we're talking about like racial inequality, um, gender inequality in Milwaukee, there are people everywhere in our social environment who are making knowledge and thinking about that in ways that, uh, um, have effects, right? Important and liberatory effects. So I have them try to go somewhere, find guides if they can, and learn to learn from a kind of community or culture um, that they have not yet learned to learn from, right? So that means uh, Christian students going to, into like Islamic spaces, Muslim spaces. That means uh, black students going into Latinx spaces. That means taking all of these great, like, like segregation in Milwaukee has also led to a lot of independent centers of like community and political education, like Voices de la Frontera is a great like migrant rights, workers' rights, political education place. And we have like the Black Historical Society. Um, so places where people are ready to offer, to break, you know, we have lots of community brainstorming. We have kind of participatory political education that I've learned so much from, excuse me, going on all over the city. And I try to make sure students understand that those are uh, places, people, institutions, and movements that they need to learn from too. And I model, you know, sort of like how much I have learned from that. So I think uh, at all times we have to interrupt that um, official knowledges, uh, privileged knowledges, you know, and really like pointing out, you know, students readily see the emptiness of a lot of statements, like we've been talking about diversity statements, statements of commitment to the, the city, like that sort of thing. It's very, very easy to kind of say, you know, the, like there are other centers of knowing and education and that, you know, like, like, you know, I, I you mentioned like Ferry and I'm, I'm a very sort of like, um, what you do with your body really matters. 
and where your body is and how you interact collectively with others, right? Um, really like is part of your learning. Um, so, uh, you know, like that there's kinds of learning that we can't do in the classroom or over Zoom, or even if we put ourselves in a circle, like, you're, like, there's, like there's deep epistemic, you know, like relearning uh, or learning that is just like not gonna happen for you because the university doesn't create a sense of like care or collectivity that will be like as deeply resituating as like being part of direct action. You know what I mean? Or like going to a place where people have been talking about like this, you know, uh, liberation theology or doing this kind of like uh, telling of indigenous uh, histories, you know, it'll it, like, you know, where you need to be like, where you need to be centered or decentered in different ways to really kind of like get that knowing, right? So I try to talk about like, you know, some of the like, uh, you know, learning that happens around fire circles regularly at Indian Community School and how different that learning is because it's happening in a, you know, a mode of like, uh, really like sharing and interdependency and like, there's just love. There's just like a kind of like, you know, ability to kind of demonstrate like uh, care, right? That if you enter that circle, whether you're indigenous or not, you know, sometimes like will give you a different experience of what pedagogy can be, right? And I have them think about the pedagogy they received in their families and like that, that sort of thing, right? So the classroom is only one site of learning is something I try to talk about a lot. Yeah, many worlds, many worlds of learning, many knowledges, everybody bringing them in is what that reminds me of. I think one of the things I think about a lot with your work and in this conversation, I find myself thinking about it now is the sort of one thing that you do is really well in your writing and now is um, kind of disaggregate a sort of horizon of recognition from um, what a sort of political transformation might be. And I think one of the things that I come up against often in, in my own teaching and sort of thinking with institutions is people feel super alienated and lost. Students are really struggling right now, um, especially BIPOC students um, and queer students who are isolated and any sort of moment where the institution um, the, the academic institution, the university says, we see you, we know you. Um, that being a moment of possible capture and absolutely necessary critique. And one of the ways that the university, um, that where I teach often talks about is identity. Everything is like my personal identity. Can I relate to your identity, 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 identity. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the, I think part of the um, project of sort of introducing students to the multiplicity of learning is to think about because like when it's when it's identity, what possibilities does that open, and what does it foreclose, and how does it um, kind of overdetermine our notions of collectivity. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to reflect that back to you because I think that. Um, yeah, sort of thinking about the multiplicity of learning opens up to the multiplicity of languages and the multiplicity of sort of embodied experiences. Um, let's see. I do you have a response. I don't know if you, you had a thought about that, but well, I mean, it just makes me think again about appropriation, right? And how the university has become so good at talking about identity, 
right, in ways that don't see subject formation, right, and like the women of color, feminism, sort of like analytics, you know, sort of embodied knowledge rather than knowledge embodies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's such a, again, it's a kind of like bad mirror, you know, that uh, I think, uh, you know, at all times we, we have to challenge. So it just, uh, it, it makes me, makes me think about that, right? It's such a depoliticizing uh, mode in some ways, right? And a kind of serialization and, um, yeah, and it's like, like the way the university, like even like uh, through these kind of like programs, right? Um, of like checking with students, especially BIPOC students, uh, you know, there's such a kind of, again, uh, it, like the individualism of the way identity is talked about rather than the collective making, right? Is pretty profound. Like it misses the collective making centered in identity that like student organizations do, right? Um, and instead it tries to do it in a consumerist, you know, therapeutic again, sort of uh, mode of uh, sort of like, you know, self-help and like institutional help, but no collective care. The really the, the line that I'm trying to think all the time right now is like, what is actually empowering? You know what I mean? A sort of multiracial democratic anti-capitalist constituency that needs to change the world before it becomes extinct. And what is, you know, what is talking empowerment, but is actually not changing anything, right? Like all the time, this line between the reformist reform and the like really kind of changeful, changeful thing. And I think, um, yeah, I think, I think um, universities are getting really good at turning us away from the sort of empowerment part, you know, and especially like, you know, yeah, yeah, like, uh, but, but uh, I don't know, I also am really like students, like see through everything, and they know it, you know what I mean, they're so careful, they're so far ahead of us in their rejection of kind of uh, the performances, the white performatives, you know, the institutional performatives of care, right, they so know their hollowness, right, like our university that exploited our black student activists and yet the Black Student Activist also did a great job and got some really material um, concessions, right? Or um, some real material opportunities. Um, but the university cared so little for these students that um, it, 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 you know, when some of them had to drop out because they had no food or couldn't pay their rent because they were like full-time activists that so were full-time trying to live the mission and be the difference for the university, right? Just had not, not a hand, you know, not a, not a moment of care. So people really see through those performatives. There's performatives and then there's empowerment, right? And I think people within the university can be part of like building that dual power, building empowerment. The institution itself cannot be, right? It just like, it just cannot be, right? There's two, they're, they're just, that's not what universities are for, right? They're racial, they're colonial. Jody Bird has a great, uh, line that says like every value that we're taught in universities about being ethical, about being moral, about, you know, uh, sort of excellence and care for others, right? All happens in the, con the like within the history of the university as a uh, like benefiting from and forwarding indigenous dispossession and anti-blackness, right? All of those values were used to do those things. You know what I mean? That's why we have to you know, get out of it. Well, we have to like leave those liberal divisions 
of knowledge. Like we have to think beyond them and make new vocabularies that are attached to real relations of well-being. Thank you so much for that. That's, that's just so helpful to put it all together and, and to know that um, we agree about students being the smartest in the room. <laughs> totally, totally. We, we may not be transparent or the institution may not be transparent, but they can see through it anyway, right? <clears throat> well, there's so much we could talk about. I have this list. Oh, uh, um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Uh, but at the, end, at the end, we usually ask our guest, um, you know, what are you reading, watching, hearing, listening to um, that uh, during this time that kind of um, gives you um, some support and hope and and, and that kind of thing that um, you want to share? Well, I'd love to hear what you guys are reading and watching and listening to. I would say that in the last like 10 days, I have become a super fan of a Danae, a Navajo scholar and assistant professor of geography um, at the University of Arizona, whose name is Andrew Curley. And I really encourage everybody to check out his scholarship, which focuses on kind of the everyday incorporation of indigenous nations into colonial economies. And I really, like, I love his work so much. It's really helping me think through administrative violence. He has a great essay on like infrastructure as a colonial beachhead, sort of about how through time, like building water infrastructure, which gets connected to coal infrastructure, right? takes power away from how the Navajo nation is able to relate to water through kind of Navajo cultural understandings, even though it seems like a good thing that like the government recognizes that, you know, Navajo have right to water usage along with states, blah, blah, blah. But he really helps us see how even the idea of usage begins to kind of constrain things. And he also like his work is really good. I think a lot of us are challenged right now to think like, what does land back mean? What does land rematriation mean? And there's really like concrete ways of understanding it as fully possible. He really helps us, his, his larger body of work really helps us understand and imagine uh, land back, uh, land rematriation in concrete ways. And it's really interesting because he, he, he also asks us to think about the need to decolonize sort of like restrictions on land usage at reservations even because they remain lands that are taken into trust lands by the federal government that restrict like how much land has to be grazing land, when it, you know, when it can be used for mineral rights, when it can't be, right? So, so if in building power, we wanna give more power and energy and care and time and understanding to like indigenous circulations, right? Of meaning and value and sociality, right? Andrew Curley's work is really, really helpful for putting our attentions there. Um, so I really, really recommend that work. And then um, I will say, this is not a happy text, but in the vein of literature as medicine, and this is where like, yes, I'm an English professor. I really do relate, <laughs> you know, uh, narrative as medicine in a lot of ways. Like I have been saved by the work of Tony K. Bambara and many others. But I recently read, I wonder if either of you read it, uh, Anna Burns' Milk, uh, Milkman. Right, so in terms of like really trying to process like the amazing sexual violence that like my generation just grew up with all the time, 
I found it like a really good text, right? It's about a young teenager, a young teenage girl in Dublin who during kind of the troubles is being groomed uh, for sexual abuse by like an IRA sort of celebrity enemy of the state. And this is like the funniest book I've ever read. It's like super, super hysterical. Like every sentence like just brims with um, like both like the terror and the reality of resistance to kind of like, like a, a misogynistic um, culture that uh, I think it's really, I think it's really a really good book. So I really, I recommend that. Okay. Yeah, Lucia, what are you reading, listening to, et cetera? I mean, the, so the, the, I've, I've, I've talked about this before in our recommendations, but you can't um, talk about really her work enough is Anne Boyer's um, wonderful prose poetry and her memoir that recently came out called The Undying, which is ostensibly it's a like it's a it's a political cancer memoir um I've been teaching it for the last two weeks in my class on lost grief and activism and one of the things we've been talking about is the ways that that corporate capitalist scripts around activism such as the pink ribbon campaign can become super comfortable and start to feel like empowerment so it's not just that they're obfuscating like the proliferation of carcinogens and plastic and you know <laughs> fracking pink fracking drills pink <laughs> it's not like that this is like hiding things it's that it's actively creating affective economies in which that feels like empowerment for people who are deeply deeply suffering and dispossessed and alienated from their labor etc mm. so one of the things that I think is great about Boyer is that her writing is always a kind of experiment and in and in like kind of cleaving towards from where or through what means is literature possible or is through or is critique possible through in the context of a totalizing capitalist surrounds and um so she's she's like thinking and she's thinking about aesthetics and politics and where they come together and how are the how is that distinction a bogus distinction in the first place? Um, so recently, I found a book list that Ann Boyer recommended um, on Substack, and so now I'm just reading through everything that she recommended because I you know I aspire to this level of of you know beauty in writing. Um, we'll never get there, but you can try. So I'm reading a book that um, she recommends called We Want everything by Nanny Bellastrini. And it's a kind of, it's a pedagogic text um, written in the voice of a worker in Northern Italy in 1968, 1969, who is both sort of describing his life, but also theorizing it as it goes. It's like a really interesting and smart, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an experimental literary form and a like really, it's like you could, you could assign this instead of capital in a kind of in a class like because it's it's the, it's the worker's voice theorizing the worker's labor um and you know it's fantastic I'm I'm halfway through it but Boyer and Balestrini's We Want Everything uh are my are my two recommendations this time around Tina okay um 
I'm going back as I do frequently and I'm reading Wendell Berry, especially the poetry because I'm using it in my um, religion and ecology class and comes up in a week or so. So I'm, I'm uh, my favorite poet actually. Um, and I knew Wendell in Kentucky. Um, yeah, my husband had a church just down the road from Wendell and Tanya, uh, amazing people. Um, and his work in, in not only environmentalism, uh, but anti-racism very early on, uh, just incredible. Um, so that, um, the Mad Farmer poems, love the Mad Farmer poems as my students are in the class are doing an online practicum with the Center for Sustainability and they're doing some amazing projects, one uh, on ungrassing the campus. <laughs> so, uh, but on the other hand, uh, not very intellectual maybe, but it is somewhat. I am watching Jeopardy this week because one of my students, <laughs> Uh, who was a history major, religious studies minor, just won twice in a row. Morgan Bryles, who is a librarian at Stephen Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And so cheering loudly uh, for Morgan to, to win. And Gay librarians, right? Yes, and she's yeah. been up against them <laughs> each time. So yay for historic women's colleges too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, with the news about Mills College in, in California, um, it, it's a it's a good kind of cathartic feeling to be able to to root for Morgan. So thank you, Jody. Thank you so much. You've given thank us so much to think about. That was such a pleasure. I hope to talk with you guys again soon. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. You've just heard our interview with Jody Malamed. I want to thank our audio engineer, Aaliyah Harris. Our music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen, and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. That's our theme music and our interstitial music. Our outro music this time is by Acrasis, and it's called Faked Death Gone Wrong, and it's on the album Unemployed Apologist, available on bandcap.com. Mark McKee beats trumpet, and Max Bowen raps and guitar. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Don't do well on carousels, spinning round and round fast. So fast the nuts and bolts go flying. I think the person behind me is dying, and the right operators either sadistic or not existent. If I'm just a statistic, why is my urgency so cryptic?
Maybe because it's lifted from another man's footnotes One man's ashes are another man's leisure Foster Wallace gathers dust next to my fat screen TV The heights of creativity belong on the top of people's are fascist fucks like me Bourgeois, Bourgeois, what's your drug of choice? Round I go in circles, always focused from the center, but always seeing different aspects. I feel like I'm doing better, 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 better.